good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi uh, and Dr. Kenneth Howell coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network International. Uh, you can find out more about our program at deepinscripture.com or you can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. We've been studying through Romans and today we'll look at Romans chapter 15 verses 14 through 33 and our goal actually is uh, in the next three weeks we're going to finish our long study and if you've just joined us all the previous studies are on the website you can listen to you can download them and listen to me as you go for a walk uh, and as I was mentioning to Ken before the program I just had a, a, a great opportunity this last week I was visiting with uh, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, a good friend of mine, and found out that he's finishing up a commentary on the on the Book of Romans, which I'm not sure when it will come out. I imagine within the next year. The only thing bad about that commentary is that I wish he had finished it before we did our series, Ken. It would have been nice to, <laughs> uh, to have uh, Scott's uh, commentary to listen to, to feed ourselves. Uh, I have found Scott's work always to be trustworthy, and uh, he usually looks at about everything through the through the lenses of the covenant and 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 I'm usually in agreement with that uh, uh, because it looks at the big picture the whole picture of salvation history and, and even as we look at Romans I think that's important the danger that I find even as a convert to the Catholic Church is sometimes I still look through scripture from my background that presumed that liturgy and the Eucharist and priesthood and the hierarchy of the church and all that was a later development for some Protestant theologians they almost uh, describe that as an evolutionary development almost as if when Jesus ascended after his resurrection he, that he hadn't told anything to his apostles and they were left to guess for themselves as they fumbled their way around and, and, and guided by the Holy Spirit, eventually came up with ideas over 100, 200, 300 years, as opposed to recognizing the idea that the deposit of faith was given by our Lord to his apostles during the time of his earthly ministry, ministry as well as after his resurrection, between the time of the resurrection and the ascension, that uh, you know that, that the core of the essentials were delivered, and that the goal of the church was to preserve that deposit, and that's how the church has always understand understood its calling. That's the first thing it says in the catechism: guarding the p deposit. That's the goal of the church, and we recognize that the. The books that the bishops put together as the scriptures in the end of the fourth century at the councils of bishops when they when they clarified the canonical scriptures that this is a part of that deposit it's not the only important part of the deposit it's a part of it so when we interpret scripture we look at scripture in the eyes of the entire deposit of faith and that's what we'll need to do today in romans chapter 15 14 through 33 is understanding Paul's role as a missionary bishop to these people in Rome who he's never met, yet he has a responsibility to them as the authority given to him by Jesus Christ.
and we'll talk about that in a moment. But can we usually try and do an email whenever we can get one? And here's one that we can look at. Um, Ken, I'm going to throw this to you, and you and I can talk about it because this just, in my view, usually connects with our background. The, a man by the name of Sam writes, Dear Marcus and Ken, an evangelical friend of mine studies the Bible every day using a chain reference technique. He goes from one verse to the next, following references in his chain Bible. Is this a valid, trustworthy way of studying God's Word? Thanks, Sam. Well, this is a good question, and it's, uh, as you said, it's something very familiar to both you and to me and to most anyone who grew up uh, studying the Bible in, in church. Um, and the answer to it is uh, there's good to it and there's, there's not so good. There's dangers in it. The good side of it is that, yes, we should look at, uh, for example, all the references to the phrase uh, that Paul uses, in Christ, uh, because that's a key phrase to understanding his theology. Or uh, let's take all the references to baptism that are in the New Testament. We should look at all of those instances. And that's exactly what biblically-based theologians do. Um, When you read books on systematic theology, uh, whether Catholic or Protestant, those that are at least attempting to be faithful to the Bible will look at all the verses that seem relevant and Sometimes it'll explain them in different ways, and that's where you get the different theology, but they'll at least take into account all of the instances. Uh, The downside, possible downside, is that those chain references are not a part of Scripture, and you can begin to almost assume that they are. I've noticed that when people, for example, that don't uh, read the Bible very often, they'll, they'll read the the headings in a particular section, like, for example, this heading in, in the Catholic study Bible, the Ignatius study Bible, um, that's over the, the words that are over the section we're studying today, says, Paul's reason for writing so boldly. Well, that's, that's not in the Bible. That's put there by the editors, right? And so forth. So all the references to different words and then different texts and uh, parallel ideas are not part of Scripture. And so there's that danger. The other danger is that when people, when the editors of the particular edition that you're reading are putting that together, they tend to see other verses as being relevant that are uh, according to their theology. And let me give a, a very clear example. Um, when I was, and I did, I took, I took a whole intensive month class in seminary on the, the, on the subject of baptism. And it was a big issue because the seminary where I went was Presbyterian, and so it believed and taught infant baptism. But there were plenty of Baptists that came there that didn't believe in infant baptism. So we had this special one-month course where people would could come together and really intensely study. We read this book by this Baptist theologian, um, even though my professor was definitely a pedo-Baptist, an infant baptism man. Uh, so we read this book by this Baptist theologian, and uh, he didn't think that John chapter 3 had anything to do with baptism. He was using baptism metaphorically when it's been said about being born again of water and of the Spirit. Right Now, so you can imagine then my shock and my delight, really, when I discovered that all of the church fathers that I read, I must have read at least 50 or 100 of them on this subject, 
all of them believed that John chapter 3 about being born of the water and the spirit was about baptism. Now, if you're a Baptist, you're not going to put that in the parallel. You're not going to, if you're an editor, you're not going to put that as a parallel text of, let's say, to First Peter chapter 3, verse 20, which speaks about baptism, right? Um, so you're going you're gonna to play it. You, you, you're going to do it. So you can be led into a different theology. A good example that, of a theology that, that we could, that I'd warn our hearers against is dispensationalism. And dispensationalism is very, very, mm-hmm. was very prominent, especially back in the 70s and 80s, and maybe even as much today, but I just haven't been involved with it. But dispensationalism, you know, started, uh, and then there was the famous Schofield Reference Bible. Right. And many, many Protestant Christians had this. But basically, they weren't learning the Bible. They were learning Schofield's interpretation of the Bible or the dispensationalist understanding of the Bible. But they often thought they were learning, quote unquote, the Bible. You see, so there's the danger in it. So, yes, it needs to be done, but it needs to be done with caution and care. Yeah, you mentioned the Schofield Bible. I mean, there are so many Christians that just presume without any question that the rapture is in uh, a real thing. It's a real thing. It is an unquestionable <laughs> yeah. interpretation of Scripture. But the, but they don't realize that the idea from the rapture arose with a a brethren minister named yeah. Darby in Jay England. And Darby, yeah. yeah and it was by, by no means an accepted interpretation of Scripture at all for many, many years until Schofield did his study Bible and put it in the notes. And then his study Bible became so popular amongst fundamentalists who then took every note as almost as if the notes were inspired as the Scripture. And that's mm-hmm. where the the rapture idea came from. Ken, I remember when I was a fairly young adult Christian, I had had my uh, adult conversion to Christ when I was in college, and I graduated and became an engineer, and I was a young plastics engineer, and just learning to to live my faith, and with me in the lab was a really fine Christian man. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, and he would come to the to the lab every day with his little handwritten penciled studies from his morning studies. And what he did was chain studies. He would pick a verse almost at random. He would drop his finger and he would look at that verse and he would write that verse down. This is back in the days for computers. He would write that verse down. He'd reflect on it. And then he'd look in the side notes and there'd be another verse. And he'd go to that. And then he'd write that verse down. And then he'd put his reflections and then he just follow for hour or two. And I remember seeing these things. And the Bi- the study Bible that he used was a Seventh-day Adventist mm. translation or, you know, so in other words, the notes were compiled by the committee of that theology. And, you know, so the idea is that we've got to make sure that we're interpreting Scripture within the correct rule of faith. Yeah. And that's the danger. There's really no group that authentically does the Bible alone. There's always a lens. So you have to be careful. And another good example, Ken, is the Bible that I have in front of me is actually the preaching Bible that I used back when I was a Presbyterian pastor. And I just noticed that on the side of Romans chapter 3, I have a little tab taped to my pages because that was the beginning of the Roman road. 
And so I have that, so I have underlined uh, Romans 3.23, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in the margin, I wrote 5.12. So if I turn over the 5.12, therefore as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And then I wrote in my text 6.23. So if I turn over to 6.23, then it says, um, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Or then there's 5.8 written in the text. So I turn back to 5.8, and then it says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him to the wrath of God. And then it says, I wrote 10.9 through 10. So in other words, like you go through the, there's the, the, the kernel of the gospel, from a particular theological perspective in the chain references that I've written in myself into the Bible. So again, that's looking at the Bible through the lenses of a particular way of understanding it. The danger, the main danger is just making sure that the theology is correct. Now, the other danger, Ken, that I remember doing as a pastor was the idea of sitting down with the Bible and saying, okay, we're going to approach the study of the Bible with a clean slate, as if we don't have any idea what baptism's about. <laughs> so we're going to discover what baptism is, and we're going to look up every verse about baptism, and then from those verses, we're going to discover what the truth is about baptism. Now, that's not what you meant about following the verses on baptism. Mm. No, absolutely not. You know, it's interesting that in um, it's almost, it's part of the modern... Uh, I would call it the modern mythology of the mind, that we're going to just sit down and look at the evidence. The very famous uh, uh, evolutionary biologist T.H. Huxley, who was known as Darwin's bulldog, in the late 19th century, he said, just, you know, what science is, is coming before the evidence, you know, like a little child and just looking at the evidence and seeing where it leads. The problem is that's not the way scientists actually do things. They bring theories to the data. They bring presumptions and assumptions uh, to the data. What guards science against uh, individualistic conclusions, which the science is supposed to be about a general or communally, is precisely the scientific community that guards the individual scientist against mistakes because you can repeat the experiment. Well, it's very similar, I think, in looking at a text from Scripture. As long as we submit our interpretation to the larger body of people, then we are not in danger of you know fixating on something that we think is the right way to do it, but the body as a whole um, offsets our individual tendencies and and assumptions. Um, the question is the big question that you just just really posed there, Marcus, is well, which community, right? <laughs> is it the Seventh Day Adventist? Is it the Presbyterian? Or is there one of those communities of faith? that in fact is the true body which needs to be the, um, you might say, the court of appeal where we get beyond our individual um, opinions and possible mistakes. Right. All right, Ken. Excellent. We're going to, you know, the answer to that question is what we've been trying to do all along and deep in Scripture. And if anyone has any questions, go to our website. And you'll see more answers to that very question because we do believe that it is in the church that our Lord established in his apostles and from the very beginning. And, you know, we can 
we can see the necessity of the church, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, that the church is a pillar and bulwark of the church. So which church? Well, that's, the, that's recognizing humbly that God in his mercy gave us not just a book, but gave us a church through which we received the book mm-hmm. as a part of, uh, of the deposit of faith. Okay, today we're going to look, let's turn to our passage, Romans 15, 14 through 13. And uh, um, because we want to get through this book in, in three weeks, uh, we see that there's a turn in the attention of Paul. As Ken, you mentioned in, in the, the study Bible, it says Paul's reasons for writing. That's kind of what this context and then later falls Paul's future plans. Um, in fact, that's you know, I have in front of me a, a Protestant study Bible. It's exactly what it says in that, too. Um, it, it seems to me, Ken, when I look at these passages, 14 through 32 particularly, and then 33 is a little doxology, that we have Paul as a, a missionary bishop, is what he is, with authority that he received, a unique calling that he received from our Lord Jesus Christ, but not merely was it Paul, based on the authority of Paul, to say, I have this calling from Jesus, because he had no recognized authority in that sense to say that. He was a a Pharisee who converted to Jesus on the road to um, Damascus. And he received his call. But that call took many years to finalize, to, uh, for him to work out his thinking. But in the end, that call was authentic because he received the right hand of fellowship from Peter and the other pillars of the faith in Jerusalem. And we see Paul reference that in the book of Galatians. So then Paul, with Barnabas, is sent forth. They were down in Antioch, and they came north, and then they went forth on their journey in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Um, In fact, Barnabas, called by the Holy Spirit, went and got Paul, who was still studying at the seminary (laughs) in Tarsus. Mm -hmm. He was doing postgraduate studies, and he didn't want to leave that, but he came. I'm joking, of course, and and he and Barnabas took off on their missionary journeys in the book of Acts. Luke relates all these journeys and where he went to and in obedience to his call. And we know that one of the churches that Paul established himself was the church at Corinth, but there were other churches that were established by other apostles. Peter, for example. Um, In the case of Romans, he's writing to a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, whom he's never met. And, and we don't know if he's gotten information through a letter or through just through word of mouth. But he's been writing to these because he anticipates coming to visit them. And so we've had 14 chapters of a lot of theology. But now he's wrapping it up. And, um, but it's all anticipation of a future visit. And Ken, let me read verses 14 through 16 as we begin here. And there's some interesting things in this um, that I believe 
an understanding of the fuller deposit of faith makes sense of. And apart from that, it leaves confusion. Uh, Let me begin. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brethren, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Marcus, I think this, uh, these verses kind of, uh, as you hinted there, um, take us back to the very foundation of what Romans is about. As, as Paul now is bringing to conclusion this long um, doctrinal uh, statement or this doctrinal treatise, about what the gospel is and how it applies to our lives, he now wants to characterize what his ministry is. It really is at its very core. Now, and that's important because you notice how many of us in life can be lost in the details of doing this, that, and the other in the day, but we we don't know or we lose track, or we lose sight of the core of what our life is really about, and. That's possible in a long treatise like the letter to the Romans. He's been talking about justification. He's been talking about baptism. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking. He's been talking about uh, Israel and the, the, the native Jews and their relationship to the coming of the gospel and the applications of this to the church in chapters 12 and following. So I think it's significant that he does two things here in what you just read. He mentions three things about the Romans, uh, that they are full of goodness, that they are that they are full, they have been fulfilled with knowledge, with all knowledge, and that they're able to instruct one another. Now, we have to ask the question, how did he know that they were full of goodness since he had never been to Rome? Was he working on their reputation, or <clears throat> was he assuming something about their status of being in Christ. The expressions here of being full of goodness and being filled with knowledge, with all knowledge, that could be very well a reference to their baptism. He accepts them as brothers and sisters in Christ as because of their baptism. And this baptism, as the later church fathers will explain, it means an enlightenment. They've been united with Christ. Their souls, their hearts have been illuminated with the gospel. As he goes on to talk about in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and 5, he talks about the illumination that the gospel brings to a believer. And it's because of that, then they can instruct one another. And so the faith, <clears throat> while, the, while the church in Rome doesn't have yet an apostolic foundation. That'll come later when Paul and Peter get to Rome. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that they're devoid of the good things that God wants to give them. So first, he, as he talks about his ministry, first he, he reminds them of the union and communion that they have in their foundational faith. Now that's important because, you know, <clears throat> Catholics like any other human beings can be at one another's throats sometimes. And 
what we have to remember is that even though we may disagree about this, that, or the other particular thing, we are bound together by our baptism. But then that leads him on, and he says it actually in verse 15, right? He's now going to be, he's going to, he wrote more daringly, but, but reminding them, stirring up their memories because of the grace of God that was given to him. And what was the grace of God that was given to Paul? Verse 16 tells us he was going to be a, it says in the translation we have minister or servant. But there's several words in Greek for that. There's the word doulos, which is the word Paul normally uses for himself as a bond servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. There's another word, threskos, which could be used, which he doesn't use very much. But this word he uses in verse 16 is a leiturgos. It, and the, it means a public servant, like what we would call a civil servant. That's what it was used in, in non-Christian Greek. A leiturgos then engaged in leiturgia, does that sound like a word that we know in English? Liturgy. The liturgy is the public service of the church. So a liturgos was a servant of the liturgia. In other words, Paul here is beginning to hint at the fact that his service to God, his public service to God, is to lead people in worship to God. And he tells us explicitly this was particularly for the nations, for the Gentiles. He, as he will see just in, in a few moments, he, he talks about the fact that he already preached the gospel all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is just northwest of Macedonia. That represents the east. He wants to go to Spain. That represents the west. He wants to cover all the nations if he can here. You know, I was thinking, uh, Ken... Do you feel any different because of your baptism? <laughs> you know, and, and, and many people, yeah. you know, doubt that it made any difference. That's right. They do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. which is one of the reasons why many Christian traditions started denying that it did make any difference. It was merely a symbol. But from the mm -hmm. beginning, the writers of the New Testament following the lead of our Lord were trying to say that that makes a difference. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if you are in Christ, in other words, if you've been baptized, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Something has changed. That's what Paul's saying in verse 14 here. You have this goodness, this knowledge. This is what you be received when the Holy Spirit came within you at baptism. We'll talk about that when we come back. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at Romans chapter 15, beginning with verse 14 and kind of paused in the middle of their can, and I, and I just really wanted to talk about something that, you know, it came for later in my life as I discovered the beauty of the church and recognized that uh, the idea of the sacramental life, uh, the mysteries of the church, uh, and, the, and the importance of baptism and the Eucharist and all that, that was just a later development that was there as a deposit of faith in the very beginning. Terms may have changed, but uh, especially when when the church and its its language moved from Greek to Latin, there was changes in understanding of how do you describe God and all that. But in verses 14, 15, 16, behind it, we see, number one, baptism, and how baptism changes us. And Paul, who's never met these people, is able to not just presume that this is true about them, but to remind them that this is true about them because as he does in others of his letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, it's constantly a reminder to them that they are new people. The old is gone, the new has come. They've been changed. In uh, the first letter of John, he, John says the same thing to these people who are being challenged by others who are denying that Jesus is the Christ He's reminding them in 1 John 2 that they've received an anointing through their baptism. That's the assumption. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, 6 and on, he's talking about the imparting of this knowledge to the mature or to babes in the faith. And uh, in verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. And in a nutshell, what we see Paul referring to is what became the normal process in the church that you know, new people who knew nothing about the faith were not given uh, all the information. They were given what they needed to move forward in the faith. And then after baptism, they received more of the information of the faith. Uh, this kind of reapplication of this is how today in the church we have RCIA and the catechumen and all that to understand that there were stages that people were brought into the faith because 
to a certain extent, they needed the gift of the of the Holy Spirit to move on and understand. And so, for example, the Lord's Prayer is in the New Testament is only in the Gospels. It's not in any of the letters, not in any of the epistles. Does that mean that once the church developed that they forgot the Lord's Prayer? Or did the writers of the New Testament epistles assume that the people in the churches had received that deposit and they didn't need to be uh, reminded of it? Or maybe it, it wasn't to be in these letters that were floating around. In fact, we don't see it again until it shows up in the, in the Didache, uh, as it's referenced in the Didache and later. So, you know, the issue is, uh, why is there not much reference to liturgy in the New Testament? Well, number one, that may not have been a problem that Paul had to address, or maybe that wasn't an issue that he felt should be addressed in detail in these letters, because that was a part of the deposit that was received and practiced at the local churches, but it's referenced. So in 1 Corinthians, so much of 1 Corinthians is about liturgy and about the Eucharist. In fact, Ken, you're the Greek scholar. One of my favorite verses that I discovered later in life uh, was 1 Corinthians 14, 16, when they're having a problem of people understanding uh, each other in the liturgy because new people didn't understand the language, they were the, the tongues that were being spoken. But Paul says, um, otherwise, if if you bless with the Spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say the amen to your Eucharist when he does not know what you are saying? Ken, I, uh, the, your, the amen to your thanksgiving. The word thanksgiving is Eucharistia. Yeah. Right. That's the word that became the word to describe the liturgy long before the word mass was there. Every mass we say amen to the Eucharist. That's our response. And so we see this this long tradition. And the only reason I say that is I believe in the passage we're looking at today in Romans, that behind this is baptism. Behind this is the ordination that Paul received for his calling by God to do his unique task, to be administered to the Gentiles for Christ Jesus. But also behind it is his ordination as a priest to celebrate the Eucharist. And so we see it to be a minister, as you said, a a, a, a liturgist, if you will, of Christ Jesus into the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that, now it says, the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And can I think, as we talked earlier, does that mean that the Gentiles themselves are the offering? Or is that the offering that these Gentile Christians are lifting up before God in the Eucharist? That is, he, his ministry is to make sure that the, cel- the liturgical celebration of Gentile Christians is indeed acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's his unique mission that he was given as a minister to the Gentiles. Well, it seems to me that uh, this is one of those instances where we're looking at the Bible and it's very difficult with an open mind to see 
one or the other. You have to, you, you see both here. And I think you're absolutely right when you, it says he, this is his priestly service. He's preaching the gospel. The purpose he tells us is so that the offering of the Gentiles will be acceptable, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> that could mean that the Gentiles themselves are the offering that Paul, as the priest, is giving back to God. And so as it were, as, it were, as he's celebrating uh, the liturgy, he says, see the offering of my people, uh, the people that I've brought to your kingdom, to Christ, to the church. And, and can, can I jump in there? There's another place where he says that these people are his his witnesses, mm. mm-hmm. his aroma to God, his pleasant mm-hmm. aroma. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's a, that's definitely liturgical language uh, taken from the Old Testament where the, the sweet savor of the sacrifice ascends to God and speaking of God as sort of, you know, nostrils and so forth. But, you know, God smells that and is pleased with that. The God is pleased with the conversion of sinners. We know that clearly from Luke chapter 15, the story of the... Uh, of the prodigal son. So God is pleased with these Gentiles uh, as the offering that Paul is making. But you you can't exclude also the other possibility here that Paul is thinking of this priestly service that the offering that the Gentiles themselves is giving back to God is acceptable to God. And that would certainly be in accord with the very famous passage quoted many times by the church fathers from Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, when he says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the Gentiles or the nations. The Greek word here that's translating the Hebrew into Malachi is the same word that Paul uses when he says the Gentiles. It's the ethnos uh, or the ad, the plural is the ethne. Now, And then it goes on in Malachi to say, In every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. Well, what's the pure offering? For my name will be great among the nations, among the Gentiles. But he goes on to say, But you Jews, you've you've profaned it. In other words, the Gentiles, this is predicting the time when the Gentiles will be offering a pure sacrifice to God. And from the point of view of the Old Testament saints, the, 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 the Israelites, the Jews of old, that's absurd. The Gentiles can't offer a, an acceptable sacrifice to God. But Malachi is predicting a time when that will take place. And so Paul here could very well be thinking of that, that very same truth, that the Gentiles, by their worship of God, are offering a sacrifice that is sanctified in the Holy Spirit and then is offered back to God. And that certainly accords with what we know of of many church fathers. For example, Justin Martyr in the mid-2nd century in the Apology, I think it's chapter 65 or 66, he speaks about, the. he quotes from Malachi chapter 1, and he speaks about the offering that God is going to receive pleasing from among the Gentiles. So this is an exciting verse that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about his priestly service, which includes the proclamation of the gospel 
And what is the proclamation of the gospel? It includes the founding of the church in various communities of faith in, in various ways across the Eastern world, which will go on then to talk about in verse 19 when he speaks about having preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Illyricum was an area just north of Macedonia. He actually didn't ever go to Illyricum. He only went into Macedonia, as far as the book of Acts tells us. But what he means that is that in all of the East, he's preached the gospel. And this, so spreading over the whole earth is this this universal, this Catholic people who are offering their offerings back to God. Let me read verses 13, uh, 17 through 22, Ken, as we move to the next little section, because there's some really neat verses in here uh, that help us get a glimpse of Paul's understanding of his mission than our, our own, as we reflect on our own callings. He says, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and as far round as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, thus making it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they shall see who have never been told of him, and they shall understand who have never heard of him. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Now, Ken, there's a bunch of things in there that I, I think are important, one of which is, to, again, here we have this phrase, in Christ Jesus, mm -hmm. that he begins verse 17 with. And he says that in Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for mm -hmm. God. And it seems to me that what he's, one thing he seems to be saying in there as we look at our own lives and whether we have fulfilled the calling that we have, that it reminds us that as we look at ourselves and our calling, we are to look at ourselves through the lenses of who we are because of our baptisms in Christ Jesus. And, and the gifts we've been given, the opportunities we've been given, that's to me what he means by being in Christ Jesus. Uh, and therefore, he examines what he has done in obedience. And, you know, he's getting toward the end of his journeys. Mm -hmm. He doesn't exactly know that, but we know that, that he's facing that. And uh, he says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me uh, to win obedience from the Gentiles. He's very singularly focused on the mission he's been given. And I think that in our own mission that we have can with the Coming Home Network, you know, what? what is our unique mission? Well, the devil would love to tempt us to water down our efforts by going after a bunch of other things. Uh, and pretty soon we lose track of, wait a second, what is it we're supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. And that could be true for each one of us. When yeah. we recognize, well, what is my calling in life? This is a simple example of that is if we're husbands, that's one of our callings. Yeah. The devil can tempt us to go off into all other kinds of things. But in Christ Jesus, we have to recognize we have a calling that we have to discover and be obedient to. 
I just read a psychological uh, study or just a summary of it, which talked about the fact that the people report being a lot happier when they're focused upon things. People that are distracted and doing many, many different things, you know, that don't have any connection to one another. It seems to affect their level of happiness. And uh, I think that's true. You can sort of see why was Paul probably a very happy man? Well, he was he was very focused. Right. And when you pointed us to verse 18, where it says, I do not dare to speak of anything uh, uh, except what Christ has wrought within me for the obedience of the of the Gentiles. That takes us back, really, to where he began. And in chapter one, in verse five, he says, um, we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith. That's why he's received this grace from God. That's why he's been made an apostle, to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. In other words, the people, as they come to believe, they come to be obedient servants of God in Christ Jesus. And this similar phrase for the obedience of the nations, he uses in verse 19 or verse 18, he says, in other words, he's saying that his goal is to bring people into the church to be obedient servants of God. God. That's a, that's important. Being a Catholic, being a Christian is not just a matter of being a member of the church in a formal sense, having your name on the register. It's a matter of living in obedience to God. And for us as Catholics, we believe that the church in its official declarations speaks for Christ and God. And therefore, we are, our hearts, our minds have to be in submission to that truth. And we're seeing that in various ways that that's questioned and that's even opposed by some Catholics here in the United States, which is extremely unfortunate. Our calling is to the obedience of faith, to be as Gentiles obedient to God through obedience to the church. Kind of wondering at verse 18 that part of the problem in, in, uh, in, in catching exactly what he's saying is because like in any translation from one language to the next uh, that we end up with sayings that mean something in one culture to another that may not translate exactly from one culture to another. It seems to me what he's essentially saying in verse 18 is I'm, that I'm not, I'm not telling you about what I've done. I'm not bragging about what I've done, what I was able to do. I'm not bragging about all the Gentiles that I've converted. What I'm talking about is what Jesus has done. What Je- everything that I've accomplished, Christ has done. Well, that's what he means by verse 17, by the phrase you mentioned, in Christ Jesus. In other words, being in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus is the one who is both the object of his praise and his work. He's the one he's working for. That's the goal. But Christ Jesus is also the one who's empowering him to do this. Right. And that's what verse 18 seems to be saying. So that the, the unseen player behind this picture is Christ himself, who is working through Paul. And again, that's something that's very beautiful about our, about our Catholic faith, is that we believe Christ works through the priest. 
He works through the Holy Father in Rome. He works through bishops and so forth, and not infallibly in the sense that you know everything they say is is it. But but he but he works through them to bring people deeply into faith. And there are these infallible moments. For example, when the priest is acting in confession in persona Christi, or when he's when he's when he's celebrating the Eucharist, there's the infallible moments that have been declared by Christ himself to be him working through them. Ken, I just finished reading uh, for at least third or fourth time uh, a wonderful, one of those wonderful Narnian tales by C.S. Lewis. Uh, I read The Horse and His Boy again for after many times. And uh, Paul, uh, Lewis does a wonderful illustration in there of the boy in the story, Shasta, um, when he finally meets with Aslan, who's Christ, and he complains or he says, you know, I've been chased by all these lions all my life. Uh, and, and Aslan says, that was always me. And he, <laughs> and he recounts all the different places where Aslan, or who, the Christ figure, nudges Shasta along. And Shasta didn't realize that. He was doing things out of fear. He was moving along, but then he, but then he realized through the revelation that it had been Aslan all along working through his life, and that that was leading Shasta in the story to eventually get to the point of looking and seeing that Christ, in essence, in essence was always present, guiding, and they could trust. And in the end, if Shasta matured, he and he became a core when he realized he was actually the prince of the king. When he realized he should be, in other words, if he's maturing, then he wouldn't be saying, look what I've always done all my life and how good I was, but look what Aslan has done through me. That's what Paul's saying here. Look what Christ has done through him. Paul is saying, first of all, I'm satisfied with you because I know what Christ has done in your life through Mm -hmm. baptism. You've been changed. I can rest in that, he's saying as a bishop. I know this is true of you, whether you know it or not. Second of all, I also accept the responsibility that I have through my ordination. That's what Paul's saying in verse 15 and on. This is my calling. I may not like writing you tough stuff. That's my calling. In verse 17, and look at all that has been accomplished. Hey, it wasn't me. It was Christ speaking in my words and my deeds, the power of signs and wonders, the power of the Holy Spirit. And by his mercy, I've been able to do it all through this region. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's his humility saying, but yet at the same time, not being falsely humble, but recognizing that indeed Christ has used him in this way. And then Kenny has this unique, I don't know if the other apostles express it the same way, but he has this this accepted limit to what he does. He does not want to go and preach where, where the gospel's already been preached. Some people may see that and interpret it as these young apostles like salesmen trying to set up sales, you know, territories yeah. and trying to set up their understanding of the gospel and get their people so that they have these individual broken churches. No, it, it, to me, it's because, as Paul says elsewhere, as he said earlier in Romans, there's an urgency. The time is near. The gospel has to, to get out there. 
It amazes me in verse 23 when he says, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and that cracks me up. And I think about even here we are 2,000 years later, there's still a lot of evangelization to happen. Yeah. But, but it's, as, it's as if Paul trusted the Holy Spirit that when he went into an area, preached in a synagogue, got kicked out, and then had some converts, he believed that through their baptism, that as he says in verse 14, they are changed and that the Holy Spirit will guide them so that therefore he can move on to the next section where God's calling them to preach. Well, this is the, uh, the the beautiful parallel to this, which I didn't even think about until a moment ago. But, you know, he says that Paul, uh, you know, Paul preached the gospel, Apollos watered, uh, Peter came and preached, and there was this division in the church in Corinth, and some were saying, I'm a Paul, I'm Apollos, I'm of Cephas. But in fact, what Paul is saying, right, is that um, <clears throat> he's saying that each one of them had a particular role to play. Verse 20, when he speaks about, I want to preach the gospel where Christ has never been named, that was his calling within his calling. There were 12 apostles, but there was, but Paul had a particular role. And this was recognized in the early church. It was recognized in the book of Galatians, where Paul says, you go to the Gentile. Peter says, you go to the Gentiles, Paul. I'll go to the Jews. They each had their particular uh types of ministry. And you see that still today, I mean, among our priest friends, right? We see priests, for example, that are, maybe they're not gifted preachers, but they're just uh, superb confessors, and they really know how to listen to people and bring the comfort of Christ and the confessional to them, or vice versa. They may be great preachers uh, and others, or liturgists or whatever. There's callings within the calling. And that's, I think, what Paul is saying here. And he's saying his passion is to take the gospel where it's never been heard before. That's the missionary spirit. That's the the adventurer's, adventurer's spirit that Paul had. And I'm wondering if this Spain, is, as you've referenced, Ken, that it wasn't just equivalent to what we think of as a country, but it's a a huge region to the West. That's right. It's representative of the West, I think. He's saying, I've preached in the East, now I'm going to go preach in the West. So if Peter is the apostle to the Jews, you know, that's the Mediterranean area. That's mm -hmm. limited. When Paul accepts the responsibility to the Gentiles, it's the rest of the world. Yeah, that's right. You know, he's going to people that know nothing about salvation history, nothing about the Old Testament uh, 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 you know, the stories and the prophets and the, and the histories and the laws of Moses. That's Paul's call, is to go out. Again, again I'm into the Narnia tales right now because for other reasons, I'm doing some other studies, and it reminds me of the, of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. They're going all the way to the end, mm -hmm. the land of Aslan. You know, that's Paul, and, and he's taking it beyond. We don't know if he gets there or not. If he ever gets to Spain, but that was his goal to keep going like Reby Cheap in the story. He's going all the way to the end, no matter what it takes. <laughs> if it means his life, he's going all the way to the end. Hope you have, if you haven't read the Narnie Tales, you ought to do that. Ken, thank you for joining us today. We, we got started with a section. We'll finish it next week. Uh, we'll move on into chapter 16. And those of you, again, go to deepinscripture.com, send us an email. We'd love to answer your questions. and any thoughts you have about studying scripture and the purpose is that we might go closer in Christ in his church. God bless you. See you next week.